0: You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at slash sermons. Been looking forward to this for quite some time and I'm glad to be able to spend a little time here. I think my wife visited, wife and I visited here it's been many years ago on a Wednesday evening and of course, that's not much time to get to know folks that much, but we uh, look forward to getting to know you more, getting to study with you during this uh, weekend time that we have together to study. And we'll get right into my lesson, a uh, little bit of a delay getting things set up and getting here and, and uh, making adjustments. Y'all be patient with me as I learn a new system of PowerPoint, uh, but I think before it's all said and done, uh, we'll make a little bit of sense out of it anyway. The first century preachers preach God's promise of salvation. When you go to Acts chapter 2 and read what took place on the day of Pentecost, you learn that the Holy Spirit had made a promise through Joel, through Peter, and that was anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise of the Holy Spirit was salvation. In Acts chapter 2 and verses 38 through 39, at the conclusion of a sermon and and the conviction of the Jews who had heard that lesson or or that message about Jesus, the crucified Savior, the reigning king that they were guilty of crucifying, they asked the question, what shall we do? And he told them in verse 38, he said, "Uh, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, and this was the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, from the Holy Spirit, is to you and your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God shall call. If you look carefully in the context here, you'll see that Joel's prophecy prophesied of a time when there would be the proclaiming of God's truth. It would be through various prophets, prophetesses, uh, and different speakers. And at the end of that prophecy down in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's your promise. And when Peter made that statement, he was reflecting on that very promise that he had said would take place. What can we do to obtain that promise? In essence is what they were talking about, to obtain the promise of being in the king, a kingdom's king, and to have that remission of sins and to be right with the one we have just put to death. And he told them what to do. And the promise, as it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, fits very well with verse 39, that those who are near, those who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call, this was a calling, this preaching of the sermon on the day of Pentecost and other sermons after that. So this was the theme. This was what was going on since the very beginning of the Bible. That's what we're going to look at tonight is that theme about salvation what do we know about that promise go with me if you will to Acts chapter 13 and verses 17 through 33 we're going to look at that section here Paul and uh, Barnabas had gone to the city of Antioch of Pisidia they'd gone into the city and as was their custom and the custom of the Jews that they were reading from the Old Testament on the Sabbath day and so that's where they would go because that's where the Jews were. That's where the Bible was being read. That's where the scriptures of the Old Testament were being read. They were there. They were offered an opportunity to speak. And then Paul, then he begins to tell them from those Old Testament scriptures, the history about this promise. And we leave, as we look into the scriptures there in chapter uh, 13, in verse uh, 17, it talks about how the Israelites had dwelt in the land of Egypt Uh, and that the Lord had delivered them from there and they wandered 40 years in the wilderness verse 18 Uh, and then he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan after that the judges arose to be the the judges over the Israelites when they made wrong decisions and then they clamored for a king Samuel uh, uh, petitioned the Lord about this matter and the Lord said give them a king Saul was their first king And when you come down to about verse 22, it says this. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. Look at verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among whom uh, among you who God fear to you, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled in condemning him in verse 28. And though, uh, Let me skip on down to verse 32 and get more to the conclusion that we find here. Verse 32, and we declare to you the glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. We've got this promise being mentioned several times already. The promise made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for their children in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son today. I have begotten you. So this promise was there. But what do we know about the promise itself? Well, certainly Jesus is the main point of this promise that is being made. But what about the promise itself? And this is what our lesson is going to be about tonight. It's God's promise to Satan. When we talk about a promise, we're talking about an oral uh, or written agreement to do or not do something, a vow, according to Webster's Dictionary. It is something that is fulfilled in the future. You can't promise something that's already happened or in a time past. I promise you it doesn't work. It always looks forward. And so the key to the idea of a promise is something that is forward-looking, looking for to be fulfilled later on or to be honored later on. We talk about this word future. We talk about marriage vows. Marriage vows are not promises of what's happened. It's what's going to happen. Many people, when they talk about marriage and marriage vows, it's it's the ceremony. It's the coming together. It's the saying the words. No, that's not it. The vows are promises for after that. It's for the rest of their lives together. It's their commitment that they are making to one another in the future. So there is something that God promised long before it was fulfilled in the future. And the Bible is all about this promise of God that he has made to save mankind. When you talk about promises to be fulfilled, there has to be a reason for that promise to be even made and to be applied when the time is right. God had a promise in mind before the creation of the world. We look in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Notice it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This was God's promise. He had no reason to use that promise. But man took care of that. Man committed sin, and now the promise needed to be applied. We see that he, the, when the sin was committed, let me see if I'm caught up here, we talk about sin that was committed, and that sin is separated man from God. And the promise was to redeem him somehow from that particular condition. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Law, they had law in the garden of Eden. Even before sin took place, they had law. They were obligated to keep commands of God. When we look at the command that was given there in Genesis chapter two and verses 16 and 17, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So you have law. They had law in the Garden of Eden. They had it all well laid out for them. It was a utopian situation. The law would keep them in that condition. But then they chose to break the law. We look in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, the, the event that took place when Satan or the serpent tempted Eve, And she ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She was deceived into thinking it would make them wise, and that was a good thing to obtain. Gave it to Adam, and he also ate, and then the shame set in. God confronted them about the sin that they had committed. And because of that, as he had said, three kinds of death were introduced at that moment. They were introduced into death, as verse 17 says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the three deaths that we're going to be looking at, at least as far as what took place, first of all, physical death. At the end of verse, or chapter, three, chapter 3 in verse 22, it says, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now, lest he put out his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What's naturally applied, implied here is, he was going to live forever. But he sinned and broke the law. And now that penalty was death. We don't want him to be where he is going to live forever. He is separated from us. He is going to die physically. Obviously, if he can't eat the tree and live forever, he's going to die. So death was introduced in the physical sense. And also death by sin. Death is separation, and any time a person who is in fellowship with God commits sin, that sin causes a separation. God cannot have sin in heaven. Those who have sin can't go to heaven. God had a a situation here where the sinner was separated from God. The Ephesian brethren were described this way by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. I'll look at verse 1 and verse 5. He talks about how that you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So they were still alive physically, but they were separated, dead from God because of their sins. And continuing, if you look down in verse five, even when we were dead in sin, uh, dead in trespasses. So you got this idea of death separation because of sin, that spiritual separation from God. And the third death is the eternal death that which will last forever, that which will be ushered in at the end of time. We look in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and that's reference. therefore, the idea that the wages of sin is death. What will be paid after you live this life of sin, you will receive that eternal death. And that's where Adam and Eve were. They were at God's mercy. They were in a condition of a sentence of death. All three of these things were applying to them. And all mankind then were given that sentence of death. And then God made a promise to a snake, to the serpent. And this is what we want to look at in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. The scripture says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We look in Galatians chapter 4 and in verse 4, and the scripture describes something about when Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. It says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now something interesting about that statement, born of a woman, when you go back to the genealogies of the different characters in the Bible, go back to the time after Adam and Eve and after the flood and and all the genialities. The father is the one who begat. Obviously, a, a man born of woman. Why would Paul make a statement like that, born of a woman? Well, duh, yeah, all babies are born of women. But he makes that point for a different reason. And that is we're not counting the lineage of man, the fathers and fathers and fathers begetting, but born of woman the seed of woman. And this is a reflection on what we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We look at this fulfillment then of it, the born of a woman, that, that connection with that seed. Now, looking at this text, there are two ideas or two basic facts that present a grand theme in this verse. In the very beginning of the Bible, when sin arose, And God was going to introduce what he was going to do to save man from sin. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, look carefully at it so that we don't get confused with her seed, his seed, and bruise and head and all this kind of uh, confusion if we're not careful. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the Lord speaking to the serpent. And he's saying, I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And he goes further to explain how he's going to do that. I'm going to put that enmity between your seed, Satan, your offspring or your effect, your influence, your existence, and the seed of woman, meaning offspring of woman. So there's going to be an enmity between him. He's going to separate the two. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He, the seed of woman, shall bruise your head, serpent's head, and you, the serpent's seed or serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now I want to talk about those wounds just a minute because they're significant when it comes to the rest of the Bible. The heel wound is what I want to look at first. You shall bruise your heel. That's a minor wound. We think of a minor wound when we think of a heel wound, especially in in the context and contrast with the wound that we read of in just a moment. When Christ died on the cross in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 28, his death shed blood that he said was for the forgiveness of sins. He said, for this, uh, this is my blood of the new covenant. He's instituting the Lord's supper. He's making reference to the memorial representation of his blood, this fruit of the vine. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So we have the blood content here that has the power to remit sins. Jesus makes that statement. Bloodshed is a wound. It's, a, if you please, a bruise in this case, but it is a wound. And so Jesus was going to be wounded in order for man to have forgiveness of sins. David later in the Psalms, Psalm 16 said foreseeing this uh, David or he uh, foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus has God, Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses so what we have here someone might say well death is pretty fatal but you put it in the context of what he's describing when Jesus died he didn't stay there It was a minor wound for him to die because he arose and that wound was not a serious fatal blow. So you have the heel bruise. You have the wound of Christ. That he was wounded, yes. Shed his blood, yes. There was some attack or trauma, yes. But it was not a fatal blow like what we're going to look at next. Christ's blood then is introduced here. Blood atonement. Is, is, is mentioned, it is introduced for the theme of the Bible. Now let's look at the head bruise for just a minute. He shall bruise your head. Now that would be considered a fatal injury, a fatal blow when the head is bruised. And he was going to inflict that on the seed of the serpent. And for all practical purposes, let's say the seed of Satan or Satan himself as far as that goes. That infliction was going to be him. That would be a fatal blow, something you don't recover from. Fatal means there's death, and then so you have this head wound. When Christ rose from the grave, as we look in Hebrews chapter two and verse fourteen, He overpowered Satan and death. He issued or or gave a fatal blow. Hebrews chapter two and verse fourteen says, "Inasmuch then." As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, and it's a reference to Christ, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that, that, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. The power of Christ over Satan, the grave, his grip in those things that we describe as death. Then we go back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 through 36, we have in that section, and we read a portion of that a while ago, I want to emphasize two point, points from that. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. In verse 22, the scripture says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so we have Jesus raised from the grave. We explain that in his wound being a bruise, that it was a minor bruise or a minor wound, let me say, Because it didn't hold him. It was not fatal. He came out of the grave. He came alive from the grave. But I want to look a little further in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, talking about David and his prophecies about uh, flesh not seeing corruption in the earlier verses. It says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So it wasn't just the fact he was resurrected. He was raised to sit on his throne. Well, a throne obviously is the place where a king rules. And he was raised to be a king over a kingdom. So we have the blood introduced, and now we've got the kingdom introduced in this text as a part of the promise that was made to the seed of the serpent here. Going on down, it says uh, then uh, in verse 31, he, uh, that is... David foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus god has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the uh, to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so here we have the kingdom of Christ introduced. Now, if we're going to talk about the kingdom and you get into the New Testament, you're going to have to talk about the church. So the church was introduced here. The idea of the church, those that are saved, those in that body in the New Testament time, a reflection on that kingdom that would be a fulfillment of that. Now let's go back and look at those two elements, the blood that was shed and in this kingdom idea. Bloodshed was always the way God dealt with sin from the very beginning. And I believe even with uh, Cain and Abel, when you see the sacrifice that he required, he required a blood sacrifice of Cain and of Abel. Of course, we know how that turned out. Cain didn't pay attention. Abel did, and the blood sacrifice was introduced. And I believe it had to do with the way God would deal with sin thereafter uh, when, we, when we look at this idea. In the Levitical uh, writings, in the book of Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11 through 16, and And there's a whole lot in the book of Leviticus about this and the book of Exodus about the, the sacrifices and the way they were done and a lot of details on all of that. But when you look at chapter 16, verse 11 through 16, we see the Levites were in charge of the sacrifices. A bull was taken by Aaron and his family to be sacrificed for their sins. And they would take a goat and offer them as a sacrifice or offer a goat as sacrifice For the rest of the people blood sacrifice was a part of God's arrangement to atone for sin. Now that word atone doesn't mean forgiveness, but it does mean addressing, addressing their sins in the way that God had designed. Jesus came along and his blood was shed to deal with sins as well. It was required. It was God's method, blood for sins, blood for sins. And now Jesus has come for that reason in Ephesians chapter one. And verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Blood atonement, blood is necessary to deal with the sins of mankind. The second thing we want to look at that we have noted is the matter of the kingdom. We've got the blood now introduced, the kingdom. Let's talk about that for a moment. The kingdom of Christ set up. This teaching would have to include the church, as we'll see in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, Jacob alluded to the kingdom here that would be established by one of his sons. And it wasn't Levi. It was Judah. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, he's got his boys called together. He's got them in there. He's going to tell them blessings and cursings and whatever for each one of them. And he comes to Judah, and he makes this statement. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, if you look at this carefully, it almost sounds like that, that this uh, departing, the scepter shall not depart. A scepter represents that staff of royalty or that staff of authority. And so he uses that as a symbol to represent a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Like someday it's going to depart from Judah. Well, his point is this, going out from Judah. The scepter is not going to come from the family of Judah, nor a lawgiver from the family of Judah until Shiloh comes. And that Shiloh, to shorten a long sermon, is referring to Christ. So the law is not going to come until, from Judah until Jesus comes with the law. Until that time, the law came through Moses. It was the law of Moses. And so the Levites were in charge of the law. In Psalm 45 and verse six, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. This is a reference to the same idea about this king. In Hebrews chapter one And verses 6 through 9, a reference again in acknowledging Jesus as being in that position of rule as a a king. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels who he said, and to the of the angels, he says, who makes the angels, his spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. A scepter, and there's that word scepter again, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This is God's view of his son. He's anointed him to be king. He carries the scepter of authority of a king in his kingdom. Well, when we go from Genesis 3 and verse 15 to the end of the Old Testament, that kingdom theme runs all the way through it. I'm going to skip a bunch of things that we could look at, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who talk about the coming kingdom. There's a kingdom coming, but there's a very vivid picture in Daniel. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and, and that image in that that he had when he dreamed was a, an image of a man that had a head of gold. And and a chest of uh, and arms of silver, and belly and thighs of bronze, and it had uh, legs of iron and feet part of iron and part of clay. And during the time of that last kingdom represented by the legs of, of uh, iron and part, feet part of iron and part of clay, then there would be a kingdom that would be carved out that would not be destroyed. By looking at history and even looking at Daniel's prophecy here and fulfilling this, Babylon was in power, and Daniel was a servant under Babylon. Persia overthrew them, silver breasts and arms. And then we find the belly and thighs, I mean, uh, uh, the Persia overthrew them, and then the Greek empire overthrew the Persian empire. Then the Roman empire, ultimately the fourth empire, took uh, hold of the Israelites and of the country and of the world at that time, and it was during the Roman empire that this kingdom would be carved out. Well, that's when Jesus was born. It was during the Roman Empire. And so this is a prophecy by Daniel. We're obviously skipping a lot of things, but if you look closely, the prophets talked about this. In fact, we'll note how the scriptures say that's what the prophets were talking about in just a minute. John comes along. John the Baptist. and What does he preach? Matthew chapter 3. He preaches, Let me get you caught up here. I'm caught up, but you're not with me. Here we go. Matthew chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's that theme again. The kingdom. Jesus comes along in his preaching in chapter four after he was uh, uh, confronted by, uh, uh, was baptized by John the Baptist, and and then he went out preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's that kingdom theme coming along again. Jesus said in Matthew chapter sixteen in verses eighteen through nineteen when he sent out his disciples to go and preach him and the kingdom at hand. And they came back and he wanted to know what people thought about that. Some thought that he was uh, Elijah, some John the Baptist, who had been beheaded by this time and they were resurrected or, or one of the prophets. And who do you say that I am? He says to his apostles. Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he said upon this rock, I will build my church. And then turns and says to them, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. So here's this kingdom he's referring to that has been a part of the plan of God. Then Jesus told them in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, he said there were some here standing here who would not taste of death till you saw the kingdom come. So the kingdom came in that time. Just a sidetrack for a moment here. When we look at passages like this and honestly take a a right assessment of what the promises were in the Old Testament coming into the New Testament, we're not looking for the kingdom to come, folks. A lot of people are. They're waiting for a thousand-year reign of Christ, and they're waiting for all kinds of, of ideas about that, that none of them agree with each other, and they conflict and all of this, but we're just still waiting. To them, the church was an afterthought set up because he couldn't set up his kingdom. Well, Jesus made a promise that it'll happen in their lifetime. He would build his church, and the promise from Genesis chapter 3 shows that he was victorious over over Satan or the serpent, that he would be victorious, and victorious meant raising to sit on a king's throne. So we have that as the theme going along here. Now let's look at Old Testament history. We kind of highlighted this point about the kingdom and the blood, these two things. Consider with me some of the things that we read in the Old Testament. In time, God destroyed the entire human race after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh he the entire entire human race, except for Noah and his family. And through one of his children, Shem came a great, 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 great-grandson named Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God, and a promise was the same promise. It was repeated through Isaac. Uh, and Jacob, and ultimately Judah, as we'll see in just a moment. When we look at Abraham, we, let me go back here and work on Abraham a little bit before I go too far. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, and you can read it as early as Genesis chapter 12, but in chapter 22 and verse 18, he said, In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was the third part of a three-part promise that he made the first two having to do with the physical nation of Israel and their, their prosperity or their future. The last one had to do with something beyond that, and that was in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Paul describes that seed he was talking about in Genesis chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So we read in Genesis 22 or Genesis 12, and in your seed, that's Christ. In Christ, all nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what Paul said. That seed is Christ. Same thing with Isaac. The promise was passed down to that seed or that family tree, so to speak. Isaac in chapter 26 and verse 4 it says, "And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed." Jacob it said the same thing uh, essentially in verse 13 of chapter 28 of Genesis and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "I am the Lord, God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac." In verse 14 he says, "And in you all your seed uh, in you and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And we come back to a passage we've already looked at, and that has to do with this idea of the scepter that Judah, one of the children of Jacob, was targeted as the one that would produce this lawgiver, the one who would carry the scepter, out of the tribe of Judah. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, we can read where the Hebrew writer indicates this distinction between the law of Moses and the gospel of Christ. And that was an issue at that time because there were so many Jews who could not give up the idea and, and, and the old law in their lives. They misunderstood its purpose. And so he, uh, he he writes this and talks about this king, this one who would come, his power and his reign. But it says, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. One thing that that implies, and you can see in a lot of places, is he cannot rule on earth. He could not be a lawgiver on earth. The lawgiver on earth was Moses. So he had to be a lawgiver from some other place. And that's in heaven, where he was sitting on his throne, where his uh, ruling was to be found. In John chapter 18 and verses 36 through 37, Jesus was before Pilate and it was was... Pilate asked him questions. It says that Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? He answered, Jesus answered and said, You rightly say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We have Jacob, or Judah rather, and the promise made through him. Then we come to the great leader, Moses. Let's look at some things about Moses. Moses on his, you might say his deathbed, although we don't see him on a deathbed. He was very strong when he died. But at the end of his life, Through the first four books of the Old Testament, it's the history of Israel and how they had fallen back and had to wander 40 years, and now they're coming close to crossing over to conquer the land. The book of Deuteronomy is, as the term seems to indicate, duet or second or two, and so he's going back over the law with them again before he dies to remind them, you're going into this land, this is how God wants you to live as his people. And so we look in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and this is what he says about the future. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Some things to note in this. Moses' law was to be listened to by a Jew for centuries after that. They had gotten it in Mount Sinai. They had agreed they were going to follow it. This is what they were going to go by. And he said, somebody else is coming and it's gonna be his law you're gonna to listen to. You're gonna to listen to him. Verse eighteen I will raise up for them a prophet like you from all among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all uh, speak to them all that I command you, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so Peter confirmed this very statement of Moses, and he referred it to Christ. He's talking about Christ is what He essentially said in in Acts chapter 3 and verses 22 through 23, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like myself, and so forth. He was saying that was referring to Christ. And then the next step in that same reading of Acts chapter 3, Samuel and all the prophets spoke concerning these days. Those things were pointing toward these days. Well, the these days were the days Peter and John were preaching in. The New Testament days, the days after Acts 2, the days that will go until the end of time. In these days, in chapter 3 and verse 24, it says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have have spoken have also foretold these days, the days of the kingdom, the days when it would be established. They talked about this all through the Old Testament. So without question, Jesus was the object of the scriptures in the Old Testament. He was the object of the promise, going all the way back to Genesis 3:15. He was the object of that promise made throughout the Old Testament. Acts 3 and verse 25, continuing in that reading where Peter mentions Moses and he mentions Samuel and all the prophets. Now verse 25: you are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers saying to Abraham, now he goes all the way back to Abraham in that promise to connect it. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And then we have Jesus himself saying that he had fulfilled those things. When we look in the book of Acts, uh, look, look in the book of Luke caught up here. Luke 24 and verses 44 through 45. Then he said to them, he's about to ascend into heaven. He's been crucified. He arose. He spent time with his apostles. He's telling them last minute instructions, and he's going to go back into heaven. And he says this about the prophecies. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me in other words the old testament concerning me and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures now i don't believe he opened their understanding by zapping them and said okay now you see it i think what he did was pull it all together and had they'd been hearing these things about the prophecies of the old testament they grew up as a jew hearing all these things jesus had been with them three years and had done the things these prophecies had talked about and he brings it down to that fine point. And he says, I've done all of that. And then it all made sense to them. He opened their understanding by that approach. Well, someone says, yeah, but what about the law of Moses? Aren't we under the law of Moses today? Invariably you get to talking to people and part of the reason they want to go under the law is because they like instruments of music. That's one of the things. And they want to justify it. And there may be some other things as well. But, but they get hung up on the Ten Commandment Law, and that's what I want. And, and the things about Christ and all that is not that important. We're open and free, and everybody do what you want to do, and that kind of thing. But that's not true. When we look in the Scriptures here, and we talk about the Law of Moses, the significance of the Law was minuscule compared to the promise that was made. When we look at the Old Law, It was a shadow of something else. It was given back there at Mount Sinai hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. But what they got was not the real thing or the image. It was a shadow of it. You and I both know that when we're walking down the street and the sun is coming from one side and it throws our shadow over there, we don't get confused as to which one is us, do we? We pretty well know that that's a shadow and I'm the real thing. But well, when this talks about a shadow, the law being a shadow, it's not the real thing. Oh, it was real as a law, but it's not what God had in mind for mankind universally. Something was throwing that shadow, casting that shadow. Go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. The scripture says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, something in the heaven was being copied, should be purified with these things. So these copies had to be purified. Well, he's referring to the fact that they shed animal blood to ratify or to purify the law, to make it official, so to speak. And so there needed to be blood for that to purify these things. But the heavenly things, the thing that throws the shadow themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. The old law is a copy and he's the true. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Go on down to chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4 with me. For the law, having a shadow, of the good things to come. Something was casting this shadow, but that something was coming later. But right now it was casting that shadow and the law was the shadow of the good things to come. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The law couldn't take sin away. Going on down, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If it worked, they didn't have to be offered again. But it didn't work that way. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And then look down in verses 9 through 10. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A copy. It was a copy, and it had a purpose. And its purpose was to bring them to a point, and then its effectiveness, its purpose, was finished. It was completed. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Galatians 3 and verse 16. And I want to back up one verse there because it makes the point about the seed of Abraham. Verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the name in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and the seeds as of many, but as of one, and your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. What is he saying? The law came along 400 and something years later than the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was an extension of the promise made in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman. Would be victorious it was fine-tuned with Abraham into practical application in your seat all the nations of the earth will be blessed and then this scripture here is talking about that promise when the law came along it couldn't change the promise the promise is what God was going for the law had another purpose so look with me if you will a little bit further in chapter 3 and verse 16 I think I got down to uh, verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Not by the law of Moses, but by the promise he made to him. Now watch it. If that's the case, then, all these years we have put our lives and devotion and ceremony and traditions in the law, then what good is the law? You're telling us the law is no good, that the promise is the main thing, and the law is no good. What what then does the purpose of the law serve? Verse 19 what purpose, then, does the law serve, the Jew might ask? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law, then, against the promises of God? Now, Jew couldn't fathom anything greater than the law of Moses. And here, Paul is saying the promise is what the key issue was here. And so they're saying, well, now you've got a conflict going. Is it against this promise? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture, that is the Old Testament scriptures, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or schoolmaster or one that would be teaching and training the generations to come to look for something else. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that he might, we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. So what about the law and this promise thing that we're talking about? Let's catch our breath for a moment and uh, consider what we have looked at. In the beginning, creation. Before that time, you had the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The Son was the Word, and it was a plan. God had a plan. He created man. There was no, there was no need for the plan until man brought that need around. And so he committed sin. Sin entered in, and upon that sin, immediately, as we've read already, a promise was made. And that promise was Jesus Christ, the seed of woman. The law of Moses came in years later to help that promise be fulfilled through the people God chose to bring the Christ. That's what the law was all about, the law of Moses. So this is the picture that we have so far. Now, I want to go back to bruises and talk about the bruise uh, to the, that we started with earlier. What about these bruises? In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, Jesus made the statement concerning his shedding of blood, which of course is the injury we referred to earlier. said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. An example that we find in a statement like that is that in, they, had to, uh, they had to obey the Lord in order to have access to this blood. And this contact with the blood and obedience here, we can look in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. When Peter had convinced them that the Jews in, on the day of Pentecost, they had killed their Savior, they killed their King, they killed the ones that the Old Testament had talked about and prophesied about the very ones that they treasured as Old Testament writings, but they had turned around and killed him. So they killed him, and they knew they were in bad condition. What can we do? It's interesting they ask, what can we do? The very reason they asked that is because they already believed. So we ought to stop right there and say, they must have been saved because, you know, all you have to do is believe, and you'll be saved. They didn't feel it. You couldn't tell them they were saved. You couldn't convince them they were saved and they believed in Jesus because Peter had made it clear to them. What can we do then? They understood they had to participate in gaining that salvation. They had to do something. And so, of course, we know that Peter told them what to do. Christ did not simply die for the world and not expect the world to, be, to obey him. He expected them to yield to him and obey what he had to say. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Salvation will come to the obedient. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 14 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, Then all died. If Christ died for all mankind, that's a statement saying all mankind is dead in sin. They died in sin. They need Christ, and He died for all that those who live should no longer uh, should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. But what all is involved in this obedience? What did they have to do? Well, the first thing we noted on the day of Pentecost is they had to have a faith in the one that they had crucified and a faith that said, he isn't the one that we, I mean, he is the one we crucified, but he was the king that we crucified. And they had to have faith in him as the son of God. They had to have faith in him as the king of a kingdom. I think we, we don't emphasize that enough in our day and time. We want to emphasize the idea of dunking people in the water so they can be saved. You need to be baptized to be saved. You need to be baptized for baptism for remission of sins. And, and you need to be baptized for remission of sins. And that's it. And if you've been baptized uh, and you believe it's for remission of sins, fine. But if you don't believe in the king as a king and you don't believe in who he is, how can you say, I believe in Jesus? You see, a lot of people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Do you believe He's a king? Oh, yeah, he's the king. He's the king. King over what? Well, over his kingdom. Well, but the kingdom hasn't come yet. He's king over his kingdom, which we know in the New Testament is the church. When these people were baptized, they understood they were being added to the body of Christ called the church of Christ. They understood that. Their salvation was based on their faith. Their faith had to be accurate in the things that were true. The truths were that the kingdom had been preached since Genesis 3.15 in essence, and all the way to this point. So when they were baptized, they knew where they were going. I can't imagine on the day of Pentecost that they were going to be led to a point point. say, what do we need to do? Well, just be baptized and that's it. Well, where are we going? What does that make us? Where are we going to be linked in it? Well, just go ahead and be baptized first and then we'll tell you all about it. I can't believe that. Especially since they told about the king and the kingdom being set up before they even asked the question, what can we do? They believed what was preached, and what was preached was about the kingdom. Now, the kingdom was the place where salvation is found. And in order to get into that kingdom, they had to do something. They had to believe, first of all. We look in John chapter 8 and verse 24. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That I am the one that is talked about in the Old Testament. I am the one who's the king, if going to be the king. If you don't believe in that, you will die in your sins. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. And he brought them out and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the Philippian jailer. And he was scared to death for his life. For one thing, he thought his prisoners escaped and they hadn't. So now the next question was the observation of the power that demonstrated something bigger than him. and He didn't know what to think about that. And he was what can I do what can I do he knew these men were he was accountable to them for something because of the power demonstrated and they told him believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved well that makes sense because here's a man who probably believed in an idol here in in his house and going to downtown square and there's an idol here and who was Jesus And so they were directing him to Jesus. Well, some will take that and say, believe in Jesus only, it's faith only. What did he tell the jailer? Just believe, and that's all you have to do. You don't need anything else. You just believe. That statement was made to a man that didn't even know who Jesus was. So the starting point for this man was, do you know who Jesus is in essence? Here's what Jesus said, and with many other words, if you look at the text, they spoke other words to him. And after they spoke those words to them, Spoke those words about who this Jesus was. What do you suppose they told him about Jesus? I think he told him everything that the other preachers did all through the book of Acts. They told him about his sacrifice for sins. And he's a king over a kingdom. They had to have told him that. Because that's what Jesus preached and John the Baptist preached and the apostles preached. That was the message. If they cheated and didn't tell him that, they cheated his information and his faith. But that's what he was told. And guess what? They obeyed, and because they obeyed uh, the Lord, then they would be saved according to their faith in Jesus. Another thing is that if you have conviction in Christ, then you're going to cease being convicted to follow a path of this world. You turn. And the word repentance is the word we commonly use for that a life without Christ to a life with Christ. In uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, where Jesus made the statement about fulfilling prophecy. He spoke of the idea of repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name and to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He's telling his apostles, go in Jerusalem, wait. Wait and you'll be endowed with power. Then you can go out and you can preach this message. So we turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and we read "Did it happen?" We've already looked at that several times. What did Peter tell these people? repent and be baptized for remission of sins that's what jesus told them to preach so they went out and preached that that repentance turning to the lord you can't hold on to the devil you can't hold on to an old way of life and say oh i believe in jesus but i'm not going to obey him that just won't work doesn't carry any water so what we find here is that they were willing to give all that up and many of them lost their lives because they turned from things that they were used to and their friends turned on them and put them to death because they did it that's repentance Turning to the Lord, another thing we read of that the Scriptures speak about, and uh, is is that confession of the faith that was inside of a person. I can't know anything about what you're thinking unless you tell me. That's an element. Uh, that's an example we find in the Scriptures. But when I look at the Scriptures and find this idea of confession, we see in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10: For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, Then Philip Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And and he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip, of course, was talking to the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian was trying to learn something from Isaiah. He couldn't make heads or tails of it. Who's he talking about? Philip picked that scripture that talked about someone being unjustly put to death or, or tortured and suffering, And he preached from that scripture Jesus. What do you suppose Philip preached? If you go back to Acts chapter 8 in the first part, he preached to them the kingdom, things concerning the kingdom and Christ. He preached the same thing to the Ethiopian. I don't think he shortchanged him. I think he preached the same thing. And after he understood that I'm going to have to do something in order to gain access to that blood that takes away my sins, and what you're telling me is I have to be baptized into that one you're talking about, Jesus? And Philip, of course, told him that has to be the way it is. That's what the gospel is all about. Well, here's water. What keeps me from doing that? He was ready to go. His faith was established. These are essentials to salvation. But I want you to observe something that we find here. Believing, repenting, confessing, none of them promise taking away sin. You can't believe sin away. You don't repent sins away. You can't confess sins away. But what can take those sins away? Well, it's that obedience in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. You've got to do something. You've got to do something to join with the death of Christ. In Romans chapter 6 in verse 3, Paul makes it quite clear that the effect of Christ's blood has to be in his death because that's where the blood was shed. That just makes good sense, doesn't it? And so he says to these Roman brethren here who had gotten messed up on the idea of God's grace, and he said to him in verse 3, or do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptized into his death doesn't mean dying with him, going through torture and suffering. It means you're going after something he shed in his death. So to join that, you have to be baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also be raised by the Father to enjoy or to walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's got to be that death, that obedience in some action before we can be in the likeness of his resurrection. We'll talk more about this tomorrow tomorrow or Saturday, and I don't remember which one. uh, Does one have to be baptized to be saved? But the idea here is that baptism was that way you come in contact with the blood. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, also you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So baptism. You can't believe sins away. You can't repent sins away. You can't confess sins away, but you can wash sins away. And until one has washed those sins away, he still has his sins. Faith is not going to do it by itself. You've got to have action, obedience. Jesus was obedient to his Father. He expects us to be obedient to him. Only then can one be blessed according to the promise. And that takes us back to where we were earlier of how those blessings are to be received. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 27. Follow with me. You can look up it on the board if you want to. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, believing in Jesus, and you acted on it. You were baptized into Christ and you put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. Now watch this verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you're a Christian tonight, when the Lord said to Abraham in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. You were included in that. He was thinking of you. You are part of that promise. You become a son of God, not as a Jew with the bloodline, but by obedience to the gospel. And that's what the promise was all about, all through the Old Testament. And I want to be an heir of that blessing and be an heir with Abraham. You are children. Of, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Satan included baptism for the remission of sins. Now let's bring this together in a kind of a summary. We have seen that the blood that was shed by the seed of the woman, by that that heel bruise, had a reference to the blood of Christ, establishing one of the great points of the theme of the Bible. And that his victory over Satan or the serpent, as he inflicted that head bruise or head wound, he was elevated to the point of king and established his kingdom. So you have the blood that saves and takes away sins in the kingdom of Christ. What about hearing, believing, repay, uh, repenting, confessing, being baptized? I tell a little story sometimes. When I was uh, preaching, I was visiting some relatives up in uh, Idaho and was, was there for services at one time. And there was a man in the congregation that had gathered up some children. They were apple picker migrant children the the apple pickers would go through the valley there and they'd pick apples and they had children around there and he'd go out and gather these children up and he had them there for worship services and it was obvious they hadn't been in a church building and uh you know there's one sitting on the front pew and and he had a songbook with the strings going like this and it was it was twisting around like this and and they were kind of disruptive and all that and after services were over uh they invited me to preach and after the services were over i went to the back and he got up there okay now there are some children here who want to be baptized. And uh, he said, but first of all, they need to know what baptism is. And so what is baptism? Well, well first of all, you've got to believe. And then, and you've got to believe that Jesus is your Savior. And then you've got to repent. Now, what does repentance mean? You know, it's like when you're out there fighting in the, and, and you're getting fighting and hurting each other. oh, you've got to stop doing that, and that's repentance. And then you've got to confess him. I don't know what he said about confession. Then you've got to be baptized. Well, now, baptism... We're going to go back there and put some robes on you and we're going to dunk you in the water and and take you out and you'll be baptized. And his focus was getting them in the water and getting them out of the water and they'll be saved. As if there was some power in the water. Sometimes members of the Church of Christ are accused of water baptism, that the water is the salvation. Well, I kind of see where they get that idea. That just get them to the water. That's the main thing that counts. And the main thing it counts is what was taught back then and that is there is a savior who shed his blood established a kingdom gave you a place to go to be saved and you can be part of it how do you do that and here's how you do it you have to hear that message and be accepted as true you have to repent and turn to the message as it calls you confess and then you're baptized to get into the kingdom yes that's a part of the gospel but the gospel is the kingdom and the salvation through jesus christ And the baptism is how you get into it. That's what the promise is all about. And that's what the scriptures are teaching about bringing people into Christ. Well, I've got this last one and it says, mine says conclusion here. We look at all of this information. And the Bible is really a relatively simple book. It's a book about the promise of salvation through the blood of Jesus And that salvation is found in a place where he's offered that protection is as a citizen of his kingdom. And that citizenship then can give us a hope that we will be delivered up in the end when the Lord comes again in the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. The question that we need to look at tonight and you need to consider for yourself. Will you be part of that kingdom when he delivers it? Are you part of that kingdom tonight? Have you been baptized into Christ to be added to his kingdom to be a part of the body of the saved? If you have not, I think by what we have seen by the scriptures then you're lacking the power to remove your sins that will keep you out of heaven. But if you're willing to follow Christ, to be a part of a kingdom that has no end, that has an eternal hope, that means that whatever happens to you on earth, if your faith is strong, he'll take care of you from here on. So you might live to be 89, 90, 100 years old. That's not much long. That's not very long. Because eternity is much better. Do you want to be a part of that? we invite you to come and respond to the invitation to things you've heard tonight that you might be a part of this kingdom. Would you stand as we sing this song? Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.